Chapter Fourteen of Mr. Scarborough's Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mr. Scarborough's Family by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Fourteen. They arrive in Brussels. For some weeks after the party at Mrs. Armitage's house and the subsequent explanations with her mother, Florence was made to suffer many things. First came the one week before they started, which was perhaps the worst of all. This was specially embittered by the fact that Mrs. Mountjoy absolutely refused to divulge her plans as they were made. There was still a fortnight before she could be received at Brussels, and as to that fortnight she would tell nothing. Her knowledge of human nature probably went so far as to teach her that she could thus most torment her daughter. It was not that she wished to torment her in a revengeful spirit. She was quite certain, within her own bosom, that she did all in love. She was devoted to her daughter, but she was thwarted, and therefore told herself that she could best father the girl's interests by tormenting her. It was not meditated revenge but that revenge which springs up without any meditation, and is often therefore the most bitter. "'I must bring her nose to the grindstone,' was the manner in which she would have probably expressed her thoughts to herself. Consequently, Florence's nose was brought to the grindstone, and the operation made her miserable. She would not, however, complain when she had discovered what her mother was doing. She asked such questions as appeared to be natural, and put up with replies which purposely withheld all information. "'Mamma, have you not settled on what day we shall start?' "'No, my dear.' "'Mamma, where are we going?' "'I cannot tell you as yet. I am by no means sure myself.' "'I shall be glad to know, Mamma, what I am to pack up for use on the journey.' "'Just the same as you would do on any journey.' Then Florence held her tongue, and consoled herself with thinking of Harry Ansley. At last the day came, and she knew that she was to be taken to Boulogne. Before this time she had received one letter from Harry, full of love, full of thanks, just what a lover's letter ought to have been. But yet she was disturbed by it. It had been delivered to herself in the usual way, and she might have concealed the receipt of it from her mother because the servants in the house were all on her side. But this would not be in accordance with the conduct which she had arranged for herself, and she told her mother. "'It is just an acknowledgment of mine to him. It was to have been expected, but I regret it.' "'I do not ask to see it,' said Mrs. Mountjoy angrily. "'I could not show it you, Mamma, though I think it right to tell you of it.' I do not ask to see it, I tell you. I never wish to hear his name again from your tongue. But I knew how it would be, of course. I cannot allow this kind of thing to go on. It must be prevented. It will not go on, Mamma. But it has gone on. You tell me that he has already written. Do you think it proper that you should correspond with a young man of whom I do not approve? Florence endeavoured to reflect whether she did think it proper or not. She thought it quite proper that she should love Harry Ansley with all her heart, but was not quite sure as to the correspondence. 
"'At any rate, you must understand,' continued Mrs. Mountjoy, "'that I will not permit it. "'All letters, while we are abroad, must be brought to me, "'and if any come from him, they shall be sent back to him. "'I do not wish to open his letters, but you cannot be allowed to receive them. "'When we are at Brussels, I shall consult your uncle upon the subject. "'I am very sorry, Florence, that there should be this cause of quarrel between us, "'but it is your doing.' "'Oh, mamma, why should you be so hard?' "'I am hard because I will not allow you to accept a young man who has, I believe, behaved very badly, and who has got nothing of his own.' "'He is his uncle's heir?' Mm, "'We know what that may come to. Mountjoy was his father's heir, and nothing could be entailed more strictly than Tretton. We know what entails have come to there.' "'Mr. Prosper will find some way of escaping from it. "'Entails go for nothing now, "'and I hear that he thinks so badly of his nephew "'that he has already quarrelled with him, "'and he is quite a young man himself.' "'I cannot think how you can be so foolish, "'you who declared that you are throwing your cousin over "'because he is no longer to have all his father's property.' "'Oh, mamma, that is not true!' "'Very well, my dear.' "'I never allowed it to be said in my name "'that I was engaged to my cousin Mountjoy.' "'Very well. "'I will never allow it to be said in my name "'that with my consent you are engaged to Mr. Henry Ansley.' Six or seven days after this "'they were settled together most uncomfortably "'in a hotel at Boulogne. "'Mrs. Mountjoy had gone there "'because there was no other retreat "'to which she could take her daughter.' and because she had resolved to remove her from beyond the sphere of Harry Ansley's presence. She had at first thought of Ostend, but it seemed to her that Ostend was within the kingdom reigned over by Sir Magnus, and that there would be some impropriety in removing from thence to the capital in which Sir Magnus was reigning. It was as though you were to sojourn for three days at the park gates before you were entertained at the mansion. Therefore they stayed at Boulogne, and Mrs. Mountjoy tried the bathing, cold as the water was with equinoctial gales, in order that there might be the appearance of a reason for her being at Boulogne. And for company's sake, and in the hope of maintaining some fellowship with her mother, Florence bathed also. "'Mamma, he has not written again,' said Florence, coming up one day from the stand. "'I suppose that you are impatient.' "'Why should there be a quarrel between us? I am not impatient. If you would only believe me, it would be so much more happy for both of us. You always used to believe me.' "'That was before you knew Mr. Harry Ansley.' There was something in this very aggravating, something specially intended to excite angry feelings. But Florence was determined to forbear. "'I think you may believe me, Mamma. "'I am your own daughter, and I shall not deceive you. "'I do consider myself engaged to Mr. Ansley. "'You need not tell me that. "'But while I am living with you, "'I will promise not to receive letters from him without your leave. "'If one should come, I will bring it to you, unopened, "'so that you may deal with it as though it had been delivered to yourself. "'I care nothing about my uncle as to this affair.' What he may say cannot affect me, but what you say does affect me very much. 
I will promise neither to write nor to hear from Mr. Ansley for three months. Will not that satisfy you? Mrs. Mountjoy would not say that it did satisfy her, but she somewhat mitigated her treatment of her daughter until they arrived together at Sir Magnus's mansion. They were shown through the great hall by three lackeys into an inner vestibule where they encountered the great man himself. He was just then preparing to be put on to his horse, and Lady Mountjoy had already gone forth in her carriage for her daily airing, with the object, in truth, of avoiding the newcomers. "'My dear Sarah,' said Sir Magnus, "'I hope I have the pleasure of seeing you and my niece very well. Let me see, your name is—' "'My name is Florence,' said the young lady, so interrogated. "'Ah, yes, to be sure. I shall forget my own name soon. If any one was to call me Magnus without the Sir, I shouldn't know whom they meant.' Then he looked his niece in the face, and it occurred to him that Anderson might not improbably desire to flirt with her. Anderson was the riding attaché, who always accompanied him on horseback, and of whom Lady Mountjoy had predicted that he would be sure to flirt with the minister's niece. At that moment Anderson himself came in, and some ceremony of introduction took place. Anderson was a fair-haired, good-looking young man, with that thorough look of self-satisfaction and conceit which attachés are much more wont to exhibit than to deserve. For the work of an attaché at Brussels is not of a nature to bring forth the highest order of intellect, but the occupations are of a nature to make a young man feel that he is not like other young men. "'I am so sorry that Lady Mountjoy has just gone out. She did not expect you till the later train. You have been staying at Boulogne.' "'What on earth made you stay at Boulogne?' "'Bathing,' said Mrs. Mountjoy, in a low voice. "'Ah, yes, I suppose so. Why did you not come to Ostend? There is better bathing there, and I could have done something for you.' "'What? Horses ready, are they?' "'I must go out and show myself, or otherwise they will think that I am dead. If I were absent from the boulevard at this time of day, I should be put into the newspapers.' "'Where is Mrs. Richards?' Then the two guests, with their own special baker, were made over to the ministerial housekeeper, and Sir Magnus went forth upon his ride. "'She's a pretty girl, that niece of mine,' said Sir Magnus. "'Uncommonly pretty,' said the attaché. "'But I believe she's engaged to someone. I quite forget who. But I know there is some aspirant.' "'Therefore you had better keep your toe in your pump, young man.' "'I don't know that I shall keep my toe in my pump because there is another aspirant,' said Anderson. "'You rather wet my ardour, sir, to new exploits. "'In such circumstances one is inclined to think that the aspirant must look after himself. "'Not that I can see for a moment that Miss Mountjoy should ever look after me.' When Mrs. Mountjoy came down to the drawing-room, there seemed to be quite a party collected to enjoy the hospitality of Sir Magnus. But there were not, in truth, many more than the usual number at the board. There were Lady Mountjoy, and Miss Abbott, and Mr. Anderson with Mr. Montgomery Abuthnot, the two attachés. Mr. Montgomery Abuthnot was especially proud of his name, but was otherwise rather a humble young man as an attaché, 
having as yet been only three months with Sir Magnus, and desirous of perfecting himself in foreign office manners, under the tuition of Mr. Anderson. Mr. Blow, secretary of legation, was not there. He was a married man of austere manners, who, to tell the truth, looked down from a considerable height as regarded foreign office knowledge, upon his chief. It was Mr. Blow who did the grinding on behalf of the Belgian legation, and who sometimes did not hesitate to let it be known that such was the fact. Neither he nor Mrs. Blow was popular at the embassy, or it may perhaps be said with more truth that the embassy was not popular with Mr. and Mrs. Blow. It may be stated also that there was a clerk attached to the establishment, Mr. Bunderdown, who had been there for some years, and who was good-naturedly regarded by the English inhabitants as a third attaché. Mr. Montgomery Arbuthnot did his best to let it be understood that this was a mistake. In the affairs of the legation, which no doubt did not go beyond the legation, Mr. Bunderdown generally sided with Mr. Blow. Mr. Montgomery Arbuthnot was recognised as a second-mounted attaché, though his attendance on the boulevard was not as constant as that of Mr. Anderson, in consequence, probably, of the fact that he had not a horse of his own. But there were others also present. There was Sir Thomas Tresham with his wife, who had been sent over to inquire into the iron trade of Belgium. He was a learned free trader who could not be got to agree with the old familiar views of Sir Magnus, who thought that the more iron that was produced in Belgium the less would be forthcoming from England. But Sir Thomas knew better, and as Sir Magnus was quite unable to hold his own with the political economist, he gave him many dinners and was civil to his wife. Sir Thomas, no doubt, felt that in doing so Sir Magnus did all that could be expected from him. Lady Tresham was a quiet little woman, who could endure to be patronised by Lady Mountjoy without annoyance. And there was Monsieur Grascourt, from the Belgian Foreign Office, who spoke English so much better than the other gentlemen present, that a stranger might have supposed him to be a schoolmaster, whose mission it was to instruct the English Embassy in their own language. "'Oh, Mrs. Mountjoy, I am so ashamed of myself,' said Lady Mountjoy, as she waddled into the room two minutes after the guests had been assembled. She had a way of waddling that was quite her own, and which they who knew her best declared that she had adopted in lieu of other graces of manner. She puffed a little also, and did contrive to attract peculiar attention. But I have to be in my carriage every day at the same hour. I don't know what would be thought of us if we were absent. Then she turned with a puff and a waddle to Miss Abbott. Dear Lady Tresham was with us. Mrs. Mountjoy murmured something as to her satisfaction at not having delayed the carriage-party, and bethought herself how exactly similar had been the excuse made by Sir Magnus himself. Then Lady Mountjoy gave another little puff, and assured Florence that she hoped she would find Brussels sufficiently gay. "'Not that we pretend at all to equal Paris!' "'We live at Cheltenham,' said Florence, "'and that is not at all like Paris.' Indeed, I never slept but two nights at Paris in my life. Then we shall do very well at Brussels. After this she waddled off again, and was stopped in her waddling by Sir Magnus, who sternly desired her to prepare for the august ceremony of going into dinner. 
the one period of real importance at the English embassy was, no doubt, the daily dinner hour. Florence found herself seated between Mr. Anderson, who had taken her in, and Monsieur Grascourt, who had performed the same ceremony for her ladyship. "'I am sure you will like this little capital very much,' said Monsieur Grascourt. "'It is as much nicer than Paris as it is smaller and less pretentious.' Florence could only assent. "'You will soon be able to learn something of us. But in Paris you must be to the manner born, or half a lifetime will not suffice.' "'We'll put you up to the time of day,' said Mr. Anderson, who did not choose, as he said afterward, that this titbit should be taken out of his mouth. "'I dare say that all I shall want will come naturally without any putting up. "'You won't find it amiss to know a little of what's what. "'You have not got a riding-horse here?' "'Oh, no,' said Florence. "'I was going on to say that I can manage to secure one for you.' "'Billibong has got an excellent horse that carried the Princess of Styria last year.' Mr. Anderson was supposed to be peculiarly up to everything concerning horses. "'But I have not got a habit. That is a much more serious affair.' "'Well, yes. Billibong does not keep habits. I wish he did. But we can manage that, too. There does live a habit-maker in Brussels.' "'Ladies' habits certainly are made in Brussels,' said Monsieur Grascourt. "'But if Miss Mountjoy does not choose to trust a Belgian tailor, there is the railway open to her. An English habit can be sent.' "'Dear Lady Centaur had one sent to her only last year when she was staying here,' said Lady Mountjoy across her neighbour, with two little puffs. "'I shall not at all want the habit,' said Florence not having the horse, and indeed never being accustomed to ride at all. "'Do tell me what it is that you do do,' said Mr. Anderson, with a convenient whisper, when he found that Monsieur Grascourt had fallen into conversation with her ladyship. "'Lawn tennis?' "'I do play at lawn tennis, though I am not wedded to it.' "'Billiards. I know you play billiards.' "'I never struck a ball in my life.' "'Goodness gracious, how odd! Don't you ever amuse yourself at all? Are they so very devotional at Cheltenham?' "'I suppose we are stupid. I don't know that I ever do especially amuse myself. We must teach you. We really must teach you. I think I may boast of myself that I am a good instructor in that line. Will you promise to put yourself into my hands?' "'You will find me a most unpromising pupil.' "'Not in the least. I will undertake that when you leave this you shall be au fait at everything. Leapfrog is not too heavy for me, and spillikins not too light. I am up to them all, from backgammon to a cotillion. Not but what I prefer the cotillion for my own taste.' "'Or leapfrog, perhaps,' said Florence. "'Well, yes. Leapfrog used to be a good game at Gotha's school.' and I don't see why we shouldn't have it back again. Ladies, of course, must have a costume on purpose, but I am fond of anything that requires a costume. Don't you like everything out of the common way? I do. Florence assured him that their tastes were wholly dissimilar, as she liked everything in the common way. 
"'That's what I call an uncommonly pretty girl,' he said afterwards to Monsieur Grascourt, while Sir Magnus was talking to Sir Thomas. "'What an eye!' "'Yes, indeed, she is very lovely.' "'My word, you may say that! And such a turn of the shoulders! I don't say which are the best-looking as a rule, English or Belgians. But there are very few of either to come up to her.' "'Anderson, can you tell us how many tons of steel rails they turn out at Liège every week? Sir Thomas asks me just as though it were the simplest question in the world.' Forty million, said Anderson, more or less.' Twenty thousand would perhaps be nearer the mark,' said Monsieur Grascourt. "'But I will send him the exact amount to-morrow.' End of chapter 14